We'll hear argument now, number 95-1100, Board of the County Commissioners. The spectators are admonished, do not talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. 1100, the Board of the County Commissioners of Bryan County versus Jill Brown. Mr. Jefferson, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The commissioners of Bryan County, Oklahoma, are required by statute to levy and collect nearly 900000 in taxes to satisfy the judgment in this case. The taxpayers might reasonably inquire how they became liable to pay such damages to the respondents. The answer cannot readily be found in any decision of this Court. Rather, it derives from an unprecedented extension of municipal liability contained in the decision of the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit said Bryan County is liable under Section 1983 because its sheriff employed his nephew, who subsequently was held to have used excessive force during the course of an investigatory stop. Mr. Jefferson, would you just follow, uh, um, straighten me out on how much money is at stake? I thought that apart from $100,000, the arrest of the award against the county sticks because it's just based on uh, state law negligence, wasn't that? That the state has consented or the county uh, is liable for ordinary negligence under state law, no civil rights thing. So we're talking about only $100,000 of the award. No, Your Honor, I think that's incorrect. The the judgment against the county was for the violation of civil rights, and in fact, but the Fifth Circuit didn't reach the question of negligence. That, that, that issue is... But did that, that's what the jury... Wasn't this a jury trial, and didn't they have... Um, a set of interrogatories? Your Honor, if, if you look at the judgment, the judgment that's in the appendix to the petition for cert, the judgment itself awards damages jointly and severally against the county and against the officer for somewhere near 800000 My figure of 900000 Yes, but look, look at 42A. And the only two items that seem to be related to the 1983 exclusively are K and L. The jury answered yes to interrogatory eight and nine. Do you find that the county was negligent? And the same thing in interrogatory nine. There were there were state law negligence claims That's given correct. to the jury, right? Yes, yes, Your Honor. Do and any of your arguments here depend on the amount of the jury verdict? They do not. They do not, Your Honor. They do not depend on the amount. But, but you did, in the opening you made a statement about how much was at stake and I I just wanted to point out that it seems to me that most of this is plain old ordinary negligence under state law, and we're only talking about part of the award. I appreciate that, Justice Ginsburg. What the Fifth Circuit found was that because the nephew had pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault and other misdemeanor offenses before he was hired, the Fifth Circuit held that the sheriff was precluded from hiring him in the first place. In his two-to-one opinion, the court then held that the sheriff's decision actually caused the injuries suffered by the respondent at the hands of the nephew. We contend the Fifth Circuit is wrong on several fronts. In the first place, Bryan County never adopted an official policy of employing unqualified applicants. What instructions on causation were given here and what should have been given, and did the county preserve any objections? Yes, Your Honor. The instructions are contained in 124A through 132A of the joint appendix. 
the instruction on causation was the standard deliberate indifference instruction that this court has derived from uh, Canton and other cases. The objections were clear. The objections were that there is no policy in this case of hiring unqualified applicants. There is no policy of hiring one individual officer and that as a matter of law, the case ought not to be submitted to the jury. We moved for summary judgment. We moved for directive verdict. We renewed the directive verdict. We moved for JNOV uh, or a motion for judgment. What, do you think the that um, perhaps the jury under these instructions could have based liability on a finding of just but-for causation? Exactly, Your Honor. I think that that is what they found. And has this court approved that approach? It has not. It has not approved that approach. And, in fact, the causation has to be much more highly regulated than a but-for causation under Canton, under Tuttle, under every single case that this court has decided in the Section 1983 context. Mr. Jefferson, could we go back to the question of policy? And, and you have said the county doesn't have a policy here. Uh, and I guess more exactly, the sheriff doesn't have a policy here of hiring unqualified or violence-prone applicants. That's correct. Uh, it makes perfect sense to distinguish between policy and implementation or failure to implement the policy. When the policy is made by one person or body and it's being carried out by another one, if the, if the county commissioners were setting this policy and they said, investigate the applicants carefully and don't hire ones with criminal records indicating violence, and somebody like the sheriff, uh, for whatever reason, uh, fail to follow it, we would say one instance does not convert that instance into county policy. Uh, it's only when the policy makers know that it's not being carried out and they do nothing about it that we can say they become deliberately indifferent to it and so on. The trouble is here we have a different situation. The policy is being made by the sheriff himself. And on the one hand, we'll assume that the sheriff has traditionally had a general policy of, of investigating applicants and not hiring those with criminal records indicating violence. But we also have to face the fact that it was the sheriff himself uh, who said, I, in effect, I'm not even, I didn't even bother to finish reading the criminal record. Uh, I, I didn't care. When the policymaker himself does not follow that policy, why don't we judge the policymaker based on that one instance rather than saying, oh, well, we'll wait and see if he does it several times before we attribute a change of policy to him? I think there are, there are several answers to that question. Uh, the, maybe even not the first in order of priority is compare what happened in this case to what happened in Pembauer where, again, the county prosecutor there made one decision and the court held in a plurality opinion that was enough to establish liability of the county. That decision to go in without a warrant and... Because it was, it was a deliberate decision in that case. It was case. a deliberate decision. That's correct, Your Honor. Just like in our case, a deliberate decision to hire Stacey Burns, no question about that. And a deliberate decision not to even finish reading the criminal record. Or negligent. A, a negligent. A, a well, do we have, do we have the option to characterize it as negligence? Didn't I, the, think, I think we can speculate that that's what it is. What, was the, what, was, the standard, what was the standard put to the jury? Did they have to find that, that there was deliberate indifference? Uh, and if, if they found that there was, then we can't call it negligence. They, they had to find that it was deliberate indifference, but the, the facts So of why the case, doesn't that put it in the same class with Because the facts of the case are as consistent. When you look at the facts, they're as consistent 
was either a finding of negligence, failure to use ordinary care, or, Your Honor, even a finding that he was pursuing his own personal interest. Yeah, but the jury did find deliberate indifference, didn't it? You're you're correct, Your Honor. So that the fact, we have to take the facts as they come to us, I suppose. And I'm offering Uh, the facts. And I I don't know why we would recharacterize them. And if we don't recharacterize them, why aren't we in a Pembauer situation? Justice Souter, the other answer to that question is, in Pembauer, it was a governmental purpose that this uh, county prosecutor was furthering. I think the answer here is we don't know what the purpose was. And I don't think just because the jury found that there's deliberate indifference here that this court is bound to that opinion. Mr. When, Mr. When Jackson, yes, yes, we're right. talking about policy. The word policy isn't in the statute, is it? No, it is not. I mean, that's just sort of a shorthand that we've used, and, and, and maybe in a close case we should stop using it. The statute doesn't require a policy. It requires a statute, ordinance, regulation, custom, or usage. Now, maybe a single act uh, may establish a policy, but it's hard to see how a single act can establish a custom or usage. I think that's, that's exactly correct, Your Honor. And, not, and, and this, raises, this case raises the question in Pembauer, which I don't think was fully resolved, and Chief Justice Rehnquist, you'll recall this. Is it the case that every time someone who is designated policymaker makes a decision, no matter what it is, that he's making policy for the county. But isn't, words, isn't the answer to that clearly no? Uh, yeah, but, but whether he is or whether he isn't depends on whether the action is, is essentially a negligent action or whether it's an intentional one. Uh, if, if I was just careless, if the, you know, the coffee was boiling over and I forgot to come back and finish reading the record of the applicant, sure, negligence. Uh, but, uh, but if, if in fact, um, I, I, I simply said, Here's this record. I don't know what's in it. I'm not even going to bother to finish reading it. Um, I suppose that's intentional. Even if he had read... Isn't that what it turns on? Uh, I, I, think, I think not, Your Honor, but even if he had read what was in the record, and this is a very central point here, and it's not an easy one to make based on these facts, but I think the analysis has to be this way. Even if he had read that record, he was authorized to put this person on the force. Under the Constitution. Well, he may have been authorized by state law, but there would be a question of whether it was constitutional. I disagree with that, Your Honor. Why? Because there is nothing in the Constitution or in any opinion of this court that I'm aware of that says that it is unconstitutional to hire somebody who has a background of misdemeanor arrest. If, well, and, uh, no, or it, this, I mean, we are, our standards are not that specific, but we do have a standard of which we've been characterizing as deliberate indifference. And I would suppose that it could be found to be within the scope of deliberate indifference. Well, I disagree, and I think that that is a, a, a policy question well, for Mr. the court. Well, Mr. Jefferson, even if there's a finding here of deliberate indifference, does that mean that uh, the jury does not have to evaluate whether that single act of deliberate indifference caused the respondents' injuries? I don't think they were asked to decide that. It was, it was a theory that, well, uh, this employee was hired, and therefore there had to be causation, because if he hadn't been hired, this accident wouldn't have occurred. And isn't something more required than that? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, I mean even if there was deliberate indifference in a single act of hiring, it seems to me uh, an act that no law required 
uh, or prohibited the hiring of someone with misdemeanor convictions. Isn't it true, Mr. Jefferson, that the jury specifically found that the inadequate hiring directly caused the plaintiff's injury? It did. Yeah. So there was a finding on causation directly. But for sense. But no, but for is not used in the instruction. Is but but it? that's the only evidence of it, Your Honor. I mean, it's only a but for. The, the evidence behind this jury's verdict is only in a but for and a vicarious sense that there is a causative link of any kind. Well, is your principal argument that there was inadequate evidence to support the judgment? Then we don't have to wrestle with the question of whether a single incident could constitute a policy, if that's the case. I believe that 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 is our position. The evidence doesn't support any policy. You should basically set the the judgment aside for inadequate evidence. On the single incident uh, point, is it the county's position that if the sheriff had before him a record that showed us not just misdemeanors, you of course say that's a minor record, but had a, a record before him of, of a series of felonies and violent behavior and a, just a, an extremely obvious danger putting the officer on the street, that that still could not constitute the basis for liability. I think you have to be very careful, Your Honor, when we're talking about what is really a negligent hiring. But I'm, I'm assuming that the record is so clear that any competent sheriff would have recognized a serious danger to the public by letting this man uh, uh, be hired as a police officer. That still would not justify liabilities. I understand your theory. It would not. It would not be unconstitutional to hire him. And I'll, and I'll support that with an, uh, a case that Your Honor wrote uh, for unanimous court, the Collins versus Harker Heights case. There was clear evidence there. It's under the Due Process Clause, and I understand that's a different uh, amendment that, that we're talking about, but there was clear evidence there that sending this person down into the sewer was going to result in death. I mean, that's what the... But there was no constitutional violation. That's exactly right. I thought the assumption in this case was that the the officer who had been hired did commit a violation of the Fourth Amendment rights of the plaintiff. But you would have to find here that the county violated the Constitution. and, And my question is, if it had been as foreseeable as my hypothetical suggested... You would still say no, no lie. I would say no. And, and, I, and I give as an answer, Your Honor, Collins versus Harker Heights. In that, you, you stated the due process clause is not a guarantee against incorrect or ill-advised personnel decisions. That's correct. I mean, there are states that have lesser standards than Oklahoma's does. There are states that have more severe standards. But nothing about any of those standards in and of themselves shows that the standard is unconstitutional. Mr. Jefferson, you... Uh, put Pam Bauer in one box because that involved a direction by the prosecutor, go do it. So the causation problem that Justice O'Connor brought up here didn't exist there. But you also had in your brief something about a category of dangerous uh, practices, and I was not clear on what would fit that category. It wasn't something, a direct command like, shoot him. Uh, but I had- what, what is a dangerous practice that might make the municipality liable? I had in mind uh, uh, something like Canton, uh, where a dangerous practice would be putting people out on the police force, for example, with no training in the use of deadly weapons. That could be uh, enough to make... One person, liable. suppose it's done just once. You would acknowledge that that would be enough? You're, under, under Canton, I, I would acknowledge it would. Under Canton, yes. For, for that training sort of idea. But for hiring... For hiring, the, the court has been clear for, for generations now uh, that there is no respondeat superior liability. And we're talking about holding the county here liable for a hiring decision, not just uh, a standard, but one particular decision that is geared toward one particular person. I think it's very critical to note 
that the jury's question in this case said, do you find that in the case of Stacey Burns, only him, that there was an inadequate hiring by the county? What you're you're saying, I take it, is that if we start saying that one particular instance like this of of a deviation from a regular rule is itself a policy, then then you're back to respondeat superior. Yes, and, and, and strict liability because there are thousands upon thousands of personnel decisions being made every day. Some of them are not good decisions. Well, it wouldn't be the same as respondeat superior, because under respondeat superior, you wouldn't even have to look at the hiring at all. Well, that's what you'd be saying, in effect. But it doesn't matter. You don't really have to look at the hiring. If you did respondeat superior. But if you look at the hiring and say that he he hired somebody who was obviously going to go out and commit violent acts, that's another step in the chain. It would not be enough. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't need to even look at that under respondeat superior. But the first step in the chain would be, is the hiring itself unconstitutional? Can what, this what do you mean? Know? Is it, does, well, did the hiring cause a constitutional violation? That's the issue. Well, but if it were to Here you admit there was a constitutional violation. You admit but for causation, but you say it's not sufficiently direct. That's correct, Your Honor. But when we're talking about causation, and your, the court's opinions in this area are, are not crystal clear on this. Deliberate indifference is not a standard in and of itself. It has causation elements to it. And you have to show uh, that when the decision was made, if it's hiring or training, that almost the court, I mean, the, the county had in mind that this violation is going to occur. Well, you're saying then that one deliberately indifferent act, even by the policymaker, is never going to be enough. It is not enough in the context of this case. because the Well, why would it ever be enough on your theory? The... the because you, I thought you were saying, all right, if the policymaker says, I intend or, or, or it is my purpose that the constitutional violation will occur, one instance would be enough. But you're saying that in deliberate indifference cases, it's not, I think you're saying that in deliberate indifference cases, it's not enough, uh, because you can never establish the direct causal connection by one instance of deliberate indifference. Isn't I'll, that your argument? I'll give you an example. No, of, is, yes. I get your argument. No, 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 you do not. You do not. Because I do believe that there, there, there would be an extreme case, which we probably will never see, where one instance would be enough. And that would be where someone like Bryan County had a report in front of them, the psychological examination. There's no question that Burns passed it here, but had a report in front of them that said this person has a psychopathic disorder. He, has, uh, he is going to, by a psychiatrist, he is going to commit excessive force. But that's like Justice Stevens' example, isn't it? And I thought your answer to Justice Stevens was, no, that wouldn't be enough. Well, Justice Stevens was asking me whether someone with a felony record, I think that's a very... Yeah, but his, 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 the felony record was so bad as he characterized it that any reasonable person would say that if you put the, the officer in the position to use force, he's going to misuse it. And, and you said, no, that still wouldn't be enough. And I don't see why it should be any difference if you have a report that the, the individual's a psychopath. The, the, the probable result is the same in each instance. Uh, granted, Your Honor, if, if there could be a situation like that that's extreme. I, like don't, understand, I don't understand this whole line of, of, of concession. I, I, I thought you were basing your, your argument upon the distinction between uh, what happens once and what is what can be called a policy. But the extremeness of the, of the negligence, whether it's uh, indifference or gross negligence or whatever, certainly has no bearing upon that, upon that principle. You, Your Honor, I agree. My so you should, you should have to say, it seems to me, that even if, if he had a psychiatric evaluation that said that this fellow was a serial killer, uh, it w- you, you would have a cause of action against the individual uh, 
who hired, but not against the city. My concession is based only on your decision in Canton, which recognized the ability... It suggests that your argument is contrary to our president. Well, no, Your Honor, what what I'm saying is that the examples of Justice Stevens and Justice Souter are almost never going to happen. The example in the footnote in Canton about putting people out on the police force without training them in the use of deadly weapons, that is quite an extreme example. And no, but the, would one person do? You, 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 you contend that, uh, you maintain that uh, failure to train one person would be enough. That, that is a policy, but, but hiring one bad person is not enough. Failure to train one person uh, under Canton is not enough unless the link is so direct that no, no person could ever... It, it, it's the functional equivalent of the city telling that one person, go out and commit excessive force. Who, who actually will pay the judgment here? If, in fact, you win and the judgment is only against the sheriff personally. I just wonder, in other words, does your client have an insurance policy? It, it has no insurance policy. In fact, it's well, is it in the habit when there are judgments of, uh, against individual police officers or others to uh, pay those judgments? Your Honor, there's, there's not anything in the record, and I, I cannot tell you. Have you ever heard, if you've looked into this generally, of cities or municipalities that don't have some kind of policy or, or custom of paying these judgments? Yes. For, are there many? Yes, I believe there are. And how do the, how do the plaintiffs recover in those cases? The are plaintiffs, the policemen independently wealthy that they can pay these things? Sometimes there is no recovery. And then how can the BIP policy of the statute be vindicated if, in fact, the judgment, is, uh, the defendants are judgment-proof by it? You can't get around the intent to vindicate the statute by holding a county liable for something it did not do, even if the officer cannot pay the judgment. Under Monell. Under Monell. But I see. That's correct. S- suppose in this case that the sheriff uh, made a notation in the file. Um, I'm hiring this man as a matter of policy, will not check background uh, for college offenses. Would the case be different? Not if it's not a more generalized policy than that, than that one case, no. Uh, we even though he says it's a policy, it's not a policy. That's right, that's right. What? I, suppose, I suppose that would be some evidence that the policy they claimed to follow was not followed, that the real policy was to hire people regardless of you know, any, any felony record. It would be a closer case, and maybe, uh, you know, perhaps you would get to a jury on it, but the evidence in this case is in every single instance, every hiring decision made by this sheriff, every other time, adequate background investigation, the Fifth Circuit found that as well. There was one deviation from this consistently good policy. And it was and that poor was relative. Poor relative for hiring a nephew. And that, that's my point, Your Honor. The, the, the explanation for this hiring is, in, in my view, uh, as consistent with the fact that he hired just to promote his nephew. Well, why is that a is. policy of hiring relatives without adequate background check? Well, if it were a policy, that, that, would, be, that would be correct. But it's, well, it's I don't not. I'm not going to catch you I guess the point on that, Your Honor, is whether whether or not it's an official policy, that is not the end of the question for the court. I don't think it's an official policy because it's a one-time deviation from a policy which could could be consistent with negligence and not established policy for the county. The causation is lacking here as a matter of law. If the court were to find that there is causation in this case, then you look at the statutes at the end of the amicus brief for the National League of Cities and look at all the statutes that allow hiring people with this sort of record. Those would have to go out the book. 
uh, out the door, or, or at least if you hold that way, then there's going to be liability in what, each what, and what, every what, case for every single hiring decision. What's the standard you want us to adopt in order to reach your conclusion? Do you want us to just make a judgment on this record, or are you suggesting that there is a legal standard here? I think the legal standard, and, and I would put this for your consideration, is that in a negligent hiring context, uh, the court is going to maintain its consistent position since Monroe versus Pape and beyond, that there is no liability for uh, respondeat superior, for simply hiring an individual. And, and suppose it's an axe murderer? If it's an axe murderer, that even in itself, and that's my distinction, Justice Souter, it, it, an axe, it's not unconstitutional to hire an axe murderer in itself. Now, that's an extreme... Well, that is, you keep coming back to this concept of unconstitutional hiring. And isn't the, the proper concept uh, an act which results in or causes an unconstitutional injury? Well, it's a policy which results in or causes, not, not an act. Well, act or policy, depending on how we, we analyze it. But it, it, it's, it's not the hiring decision that is unconstitutional. Uh, it is the hiring decision as part of a causal chain that results in an unconstitutional injury. And our question is, does that hiring decision, can, can one hiring decision, if it's intentional, qualify as the first step in that chain, or does it have to be part of a more generalized practice or policy? It, it, it cannot be the starting point unless you're to say... No, but I mean, the, but the, the, the point here is, do you, you, it's not that you characterize step one as being per se unconstitutional. You characterize the whole chain of events as having an unconstitutional result, isn't that fair? Well, no, the, the, because the Look, first... I, I, could have, I could have a policy, I suppose, that I will in fact hire axe murderers. But if I never hire an axe murderer, uh, there is in, uh, if, if no axe murder is apply, uh, and I never hire one, there's never going to be a constitutional injury. So we won't be concerned about it. We're only concerned when the whole chain is filled in. But if Your Honor is correct, then the federal court, in every case or controversy, have the right to look behind personnel standards that everyone agrees are, that states implement, that everyone agrees are not constitutionally infirm themselves. They can go behind it in every instance. So if, if Your Honor is correct there, that you don't first look at whether the hiring decision itself is constitutional, then what you're doing is saying federal courts are able to intrude on an area that has been, at least, and even under Collins, your case, the prerogative of the state government. But, but the argument... To say that, the, the, that the, uh, you have a policy of unconstitutional hiring, I, I think, is, is, is mistaken. Uh, the, the constitutional violation is done by the person who actually inflicts the injury on the, per, on the person who is the plaintiff. And the question whether you can recover against the county or not is that whether the county has the policy. You, you, I don't think you refer to the policy as a policy of unconstitutional hiring. I agree, I, I agree with that proposition, Your Honor. The, but the federalism question is still at play because if the court were to rule, in this case, uh, to affirm the case, then the question becomes, do all these hiring standards, these personal standards that we have, and all the states around the country, and they're all different, or many are different, 
are, are they enough to create a jury question every single time? Oh, but I think no, but that's, that's not true because in, in, in this case, it's been conceded. The case is argued to us on the assumption that the sheriff is the policymaker. It's just as if the Board of Supervisors debated this or whatever the governing board is in Oklahoma debated this entire issue. But Yes, and, and said that uh, after due deliberation, we think this is a good hire. And, and what I'm saying is, let's say it was. Let's say he really had looked at the record and said, I want to hire him anyway. That is authorized by state law. That, that hiring decision would be authorized by no, state law. but that's law. not this case. And if this case were decided against you, it would not open any such door. Because this case proceeds uh, not only on the assumption that the sheriff is the policymaker, uh, it proceeds on the assumption, as I understand the jury instructions, that he was deliberately indifferent to this kind of result when he made his hiring decision. That does not open the door to looking behind every uh, particular act of hiring, no matter what the governmental policy is. Well, I, I believe it does because uh, the way the case was submitted to the jury. It wasn't just... It was submitted on a deliberate indifference theory. Deliberate indifference with respect to one particular employee. Thank you, Mr. Jefferson. Uh, Mr. Sayre, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. First, I'd like to respond to Justice O'Connor's concern that this case turns in but for on but-for causation. That's simply not true. The but it could. The jury could have reached a verdict on but-for causation. Um, absolutely not, because the instructions came right out of the Canton case. The, the instructions required a finding of direct cause, and in the verdict form, it required a finding of proximate cause. This doesn't turn on but-for causation. I don't know how one defines proximate cause any clearer than saying direct cause. Uh, direct cause, closely related to, affirmative link, moving force are the terms that this court has employed to refer to the causation requirement. But Canton specifically says closely related to. That's direct. That's direct causation. That is a common uh, way for judges to refer to proximate cause. And moreover, as a matter of law, the evidence here was not insufficient to establish that direct cause because what we had here was precisely the constitutional deprivation that was predicted by the red flags that were up at the time that the county... Uh, hired Sheriff Burns, if, if, sorry, Officer Burns. If Officer Burns had gone out and enforced the, the law in a racially discriminatory manner, there's no causation. If Officer Burns had gone out and committed a sexual assault of a juvenile detainee, there's no causation. The, the, the link between the deliberate indifference and the constitutional deprivation just doesn't match up. But here, the deprivation that occurred, the excessive use of force, was precisely the deprivation that was uh, endangered uh, that was ignored when the sheriff ignored the red flags that were there right at the time of hiring. Um, Justice Scalia, I'm glad you referred to the statute because it seems to me that the word policy is, that they're trying to use the word policy against us, and that's what I would say. The word policy isn't in the statute. The statute says every person who, and a municipality can be a person so long as the municipality itself is doing the acting. Every person who, under color of any statute, ordinance, regulation, customer usage, that has been interpreted by this court as doing nothing more, nothing less than saying that the person must act under color of state law, state action, as this court has, has interpreted in the, in the Luger versus Edmondson case. I don't know how a sheriff can act for the county 
and not be acting under color of state law. Say state action. It, it state action has to be reflected in a statute, ordinance, regulation, uh, the, custom, the, or usage. Your Honor, the statutes of Oklahoma clearly provide that the sheriff is the final decision maker on matters of employing deputies. They serve uh, in the Oklahoma Revised Statutes, Chapter 19, Section 547. Those deputies sh serve at the pleasure of the sheriff. Prior to 1979, boards of county commissioners in Oklahoma had final approval authority over deputies. Uh, since a, a, a 1979 change in the law, that's not true. The sheriff, they serve at the pleasure of the sheriff. The sheriff, true, but was it under color of that statute? Did that statute authorize hiring of unqualified police officers? This, this, this court has never interpreted Section 1983, as Justice Souter indicated, to require that the action by the municipality be facially unconstitutional. This court has already decided that in Canton. But we also decided in Monell that a municipality could not be held liable unless there were a policy. And this court in Pembauer looked back on Monell and interpreted Monell as uh, Monell wanted to preclude respondeat superior. Liability of municipalities must be premised on acts of the municipality itself, not merely on acts of subordinate employees. Pembauer took a very common sense view of how municipal power is exercised. It's often vested in individuals such as sheriffs uh, who have final county authority to make policy, to make decisions that bind the county. The sheriff was the alter ego of the county. The sheriff was the county when acting in matters within the sphere of his authority, and the sphere of his authority uh, clearly allowed him to make decisions as to who can wear the badge and who may not wear the oh, badge. Oh, yes. He personally would have been acting under color of, of a statute or of a law. But when you try to place liability on the municipality for the municipality's failure to have higher standards for the recruitment of police officers, you have to refer to something else. You have to refer to some custom or usage or call it a policy. Uh, no, that's not what this court said in Pembauer. Well, that's certainly what we said in Monell. Um, are, you, are you questioning our decision in Monell? I'm not questioning your decision in Monell. I agree. Well, but, but then you, you see, uh, your argument so far as I interpret it is a strictly respondeat superior argument. Monell says respondeat superior doesn't work when you're seeking to hold the city liable. You must have something other your, your Honor. than respondeat superior. And we're asking uh, whether or not uh, you, you, you seem to disagree with that. No. Your Honor, subordinate employees, a county is not liable for the acts of subordinate employees, such as the officer using the excessive force. Pembauer recognized, however, that official municipal power, the municipal, a county cannot literally pick itself up off the map and go out and commit a constitutional tort on someone. A county can only act through human beings. Sometimes a county acts officially through boards, through legislative boards. Sometimes a county acts officially through executive officers. The question under Monell, as this court later explained in Pembauer, is who is doing the acting? Is the municipality itself doing the acting rather than being held liable based only on the actions of some subordinate employee who doesn't have the authority, who doesn't have the power to bind the county. The sheriff here was a final policymaker, an executive decision maker. Matters of hiring and training uh, officers under state law were exclusively within his control. The county could not act on these matters other than through the sheriff. Mr. Sayer, I assume that you would win this point if we analyze the case in either of these two ways. The first alternative is we could say that regardless of what the announced policy is, if the policymaker, in this case the sheriff, intentionally, consciously, deliberately 
uh, follows a different rule in a given case. But that is, in fact, uh, a change of policy. Uh, and therefore, we come within Monell. Or, we could say, uh, even though the stated policy remains the same, when the policymaker itself or himself acts contrary to it, that is, in fact, the act of the county, when because the county can act in no other way, and we don't require multiple instances because there's no question of attributing this act to the ultimately ultimate policymaker. He's doing it. Now, we could, we could come out your way on this point if we followed either one of those analyses. Does it matter to you which one we followed? Uh, it matters to me whether you come out in our favor. I um, realize that. But how about, how about those two avenues, Road A, Road B? Does it make any difference to your case? What, what was Road A again? Road A is that when the policymaker intentionally acts contrary to the stated policy, that action establishes a new policy. Sure. So it we, still we, falls we would agree with that. All right. Does it matter whether we take that analysis or the, or the second one? Uh, we went under either of those analyses. No, but does it, does it have any implication for your case other than winning or losing? In other words, does it... What's the second one again? I forgot the second one. <laughs> <laughs> um, other, uh, under either one of those roads, I think we, we win in this case. I would submit that the bottom line is whether liability is being premised on the acts or omissions of the municipality itself. Uh, the difficulty that I'm having this, frankly, is if you take either of those lines, what reason, it would end up with the cities being held responsible for the actions of their higher-level employees, even when those higher-level employees are really going against the pre-existing policy or just making a mistake or just being negligent or grossly negligent. What reason, and maybe they should be held liable for that, but, but, but how can you hold them liable for the higher-action employees but not the policemen? who, after all, is going out in the course of duty and also making a mistake and using too much force and, and breaking a door down when he shouldn't and either thinking that I'm just making a mistake or being indifferent, etc. Why should it be the one that they have to pay and not the other? Maybe they should pay both. Well, uh, for one thing, liability can only be premised on deliberate indifference. It's not merely negligence or gross negligence. Deliberate indifference is, uh, as explained by this court in Farmer versus Brennan, that is a very high standard. That is equated with criminal recklessness. When the person that is vested with ultimate, when the ultimate vessel of county power on a particular matter makes an affirmative conscious exercise of that power, then the county has acted. Now that doesn't open up counties to broad form liability. That, that's the way it's been done really since Pembauer, since Canton. Um, it, it's very difficult to prove deliberate indifference. Uh, there are very few hiring claims. Uh, Mr. Sarah, do you recognize any difference between a prosecutor who says, go seize that evidence illegally, and a city that says we're going to put guns in the hands of police officers and not train them in its um, use? Sure. And this case where in the record shows assault, but it turns out to have been an incident on a college campus. This court in Canton uh, looked at the language of Section 1983 and, and, and decided that Section 1983 admits of no distinctions between actions of the municipality that directly authorize or command constitutional violations or actions that just are deliberately indifferent and directly cause constitutional violations. The language of Section 1983 does not include words like intent or directly authorize or command. Canton's already done that. 
the, the action does not have to be unconstitutional. The municipal action does not have to directly authorize violations of the constitutional rights. The municipal action just has to directly cause the violation. Well, I'm and talking it, about that causation requirement because it seems to me that it was a lot closer in Canton than it is here. You mean in Pembauer? But Well, certainly in Pembauer. There was a go-do-it. And in Canton, it was putting a dangerous weapon in the hand of an untrained person. Okay, well, well, Canton actually involved uh, um, police officers that failed to discern a severe emotional disturbance in an arrestee. And the court said, well, there was no notice of any need to, of any obvious need to train on that matter. But Canton did recognize that there are certain uh, recurring situations that police officers to a moral certainty will face, such as uh, uh, decisions regarding the use of force. Uh, clear constitutional duties in recurrent situations regarding the use of force. Do I use force? How much force do I use? How do I apply that force? Such that counties are inherently on notice that that is the job description of a police officer. Well, that was the, the allegation here, the use of excessive force. It turned on that. And yet the instruction given on deliberate indifference, as I understand it, required the jury to assess whether it was so obvious that Sheriff Moore's decision would lead to violations, plural, of constitutional rights, plural. Now, doesn't Canton at least suggest that we require a jury to conclude that the violation of a discrete and identifiable right, here the right to be free from excessive force used, would be obvious? And here, how do we know under that instruction that the jury wasn't just thinking, well, with that misdemeanor record, probably some right would be violated. Well, the deliberate, how, how is it focused here? Your Honor, the deliberate indifference instruction came right out of the language in the majority opinion in Canton. Well, that be that as it may, maybe that hadn't been thought through or it wasn't pressed as a point. I hear it, it becomes key, and it seems to me it left it very open. I mean, you can say in every case that a constitutional deprivation by the officer who's hired wouldn't have occurred if the employee hadn't been hired. And what is there in the instructions that makes clear that isn't the basis? Well, that was precisely the problem faced by this court in Canton with respect to failure to train cases, that it would be easy for a plaintiff to manufacture a situation of respondeat superior if you had only trained the officers in Canton to recognize severe emotional disturbance, this wouldn't have happened. And that's why the court responded in Canton in order to eliminate respondeat superior with the deliberate indifference standard, that the decisions by the municipality itself must be so inadequate in light of the specific duties assigned to officers as to amount to deliberate but disregard. But these instructions nowhere focused on precisely what it was that was going to be the basis of the liability. Excessive force and not leaving it plural so that it was open to him to think, well, gee, he might be a careless driver. The instructions focused the jury on the training and the hiring of Stacey Burns. And the constitutional right that was at issue here, as the jury knew, well knew, was excessive force, violations of Fourth Amendment rights. And the, the, the deliberate indifference must, that's true, directly cause the, the deprivation. I can't imagine a case where there is a closer affirmative link or causal connection between the red flags present at hiring well, and the deprivation you that could have offered. Uh, instructions that would have clarified it, but under the instructions that were given, I don't see why it wasn't open to the jury to base it on. Your, your Honor, I suppose it's always possible for the uh, the judge to give more specific instructions to to spell it all out. There was no objection here. By but the you're the plaintiff. I mean, it's uh, you represented the plaintiff, so 
it's up to the plaintiff to offer. We think these instructions do the trick under Canton. Uh, the judge looked at Canton. We looked at Canton. These instructions do the trick under Canton. Well, do you think Canton supports the proposition that deliberate indifference is the standard with respect across the border, just with omissions? By it, it seemed to me that Canton was more talking about om, uh, omissions to do something on, on the part of the uh, supervisor. Well, we would certainly assert that it, it can't be more difficult to prove municipal liability for omissions than for affirmative exercises of municipal power that if deliberate indifference supports municipal liability for omissions, for failures to, to act, when the notice is there, when the notice is apparent, that certainly that deliberate indifference model supports municipal liability for affirmative exercises of official municipal power, so long as... What there existed in Canton was a training program. The opinion repeatedly discusses the training program. And the training program did not include training in this particular type of skill, and that was the issue. We don't have here a hiring program. I mean, th that seems to me the central difference in this case. You, you have a one-shot hiring by somebody who does have policy-making authority, but it would be very difficult to write an opinion in this case re referring to the hiring program of the municipality. Your Honor, uh, there is no requirement of a, a program. Again, I think that is taking a, a non-statutory term policy out of context and interpreting in such a way that goes well beyond Monell's rejection of responding at Superior and would result in actually shielding municipalities from fault when a plaintiff can demonstrate, as plaintiff did here, that the fault clearly lies at the municipality's doorstep. Uh, Canton explained uh, in the de very description of the deliberate indifference standard in Canton. It says, in light of the duties assigned to specific officers. There doesn't have to be deliberate indifference across the board. Uh, there's never going to be deliberate indifference across the board. Even if a, if a county decided not to train anyone, some of those officers are probably going to have been well-trained by other counties. But it, 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 why, ins why insist on, if, if what you say is true, why insist on going up to the level of the policymaker anyway, then? Why not just... Uh just take the, the individual officer. Because in order to avoid responding at superior, liability must flow from the acts or omissions of the municipality itself, and not merely from the deprivations committed by the low-level employee. The, 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 the single incident standing alone, the excessive force standing alone, does not by itself put liability on the Unless on the it's committed by somebody high, high enough up in the municipal hierarchy. Uh, no, it has to be caused by official municipal action, which has been defined in Pembauer, uh, that municipal action must be done in deliberate disregard to a constitutional deprivation, Canton, and there must be a direct causal connection, again, Canton, between that deliberately indifferent official municipal exercise of power and the constitutional deprivation that, in fact, results. And, and we have all that here. Can I ask you about that? A minor factual question would be helpful. Uh, on page 114 of the appendix, I take it as the heart of what the sheriff did that was wrong. He ran the driving record down with the Oklahoma police authorities. The Oklahoma police authorities gave him a piece of paper called a rap sheet. If he'd looked at that rap sheet, he would have seen that this individual did some other bad things and he never checked on them. Recently. Or, or, recent bad things. Right. But then, so I thought what would be relevant, I'd like to look at the piece of paper that the sheriff had in his hand so that I could make a judgment, perhaps at a great distance, about what he should have done or what the jury thought he should have done. Is that piece of paper in the record? I can't um, find it. It, it, it. it is in the record. Um, all right, well, you're associated. Well, actually, it's, it's not in those volumes. Well, uh, can you supply it to the clerk afterwards? Yes. 
Um, but it was, a, it was a lengthy record. It showed several instances of assaultive behavior. Uh, I, I just wanted to look at the piece of paper that the sheriff looked at when he supposedly, in your view, made a mistake of not going further. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we would submit that that's, that's also a jury question, that, that the, the, the length of that, uh, how red the red flag was. Was it just pink or was it real red? Uh, the jury in this case apparently decided that that was a, a very red flag that was highly predictive of this particular type of deprivation, the excessive force. You know, deliberate indifference, Farmer versus Brandon, that's criminal recklessness. You don't have to do much. Once you have notice of the, likely, of the high likelihood of a particular constitutional deprivation, you don't have to do much. You just have to pay attention. Uh, you just have to make a little bit of an effort. That effort can be flawed. It can be a negligent effort. It can be a grossly negligent effort. You just have to do something. Um, there was nothing done here. There was no effort. The only effort on hiring that's present in the record is we, we ran his record. We got his rap sheet. But then they didn't read it. Why, in the face of a custom or usage in the past of checking on records, why should this single deviation violate that standard? Because the deviation was a conscious, deliberate decision made by the ultimate vessel of county authority on a matter within his sphere. Why, why does that make it a policy? Uh, a single departure for, for a relative. Uh, so he simply wasn't following the policy in that instance. Well, again, that goes back to Monell and what Monell meant by the use of the word policy. That, that term policy in Monell was juxtaposed with the rejection of respondeat superior. That when the court rejected respondeat superior, they said the acts must be the acts of the municipality itself. Monell recognized and Pembauer recognized that municipalities must act through human beings. And sometimes those human beings aren't on boards passing laws that take the form of standard operating procedure. Sometimes those individuals who are vested with the, uh, the ultimate vessels of county power are singular executive individuals. Well, what if the supervisors in this case, so there'd be no question of a single policy, what if the supervisors had said, we always check out the, uh, the uh, records of people we're going to hire, but in this case, it's, uh, it's the chairman's nephew. So we're going to depart in this case. Now, does that become, a, does that become a, pol a policy? Mr. Chief Justice, if you take that line of thinking far enough, uh, every political subdivision in the country, counties, cities, school districts, they all get to deliberately, knowingly hire one bad apple. Well, if you take your thinking far enough, you're right back to respondeat superior. No, my thinking is that deliberate indifference is the key. Criminal recklessness is the key. Criminal recklessness by the municipality itself. You know, if you're talking about what you find in the statute, where do you find criminal recklessness in the statute? Well, in the Canton case, uh, and I guess this traces back to Justice O'Connor's opinion in Kibbe, uh, there was a concern uh, by this court about what to do with those policies that are not facially unconstitutional or those policies, actions of the municipality that do not directly authorize constitutional deprivations, the failure to train cases, the bad hiring cases. And Justice O'Connor articulated in her opinion in Kibbe that the reason we need a deliberate indifference requirement is to satisfy that causation requirement in the statute. There was a, a, a in answer to the Chief Justice question in the hypothetical that he put you, uh, where they hire the, the nephew, was that a policy? Absolutely. As that term has been used by Monell and interpreted by this court in Pembauer, that was a policy. And then if they, uh, uh, suppose they said, um, we're too busy today and we're just not going to 
check the references. Would that be a policy? Uh, that would be uh, negligence, perhaps grossly negligent. That would not be an actionable decision by the municipality under Canton. Canton requires criminal recklessness. Canton says that when you've got deliberate indifference, deliberate disregard of constitutional rights, then uh, um, you have a policy, as that term was used by Monell, so long as that deliberate indifference is attributable to the county itself. I don't see how the state of mind of the actor can make something a policy. Uh, in other words, a policy is a practice that's followed in, in, in uh, you know, thick and thin, that sort of thing. You have a departure. And whether it's a negligent departure or a de deliberately indifferent departure, uh, it's still, though, one swallow doesn't make a sum. Um, the, the, the majority in Pembauer actually in, uh, reported several dictionary def definitions of policy in a, foot, in a footnote, and those de dictionary definitions of policy even refer to a single decision. Um, when my dean goes out to collect money from alums and he has to make a decision as to do we ask this guy for a million bucks now or do we wait a few years and ask him for three million bucks, he refers to that as a policy decision. I made a policy decision to ask for the million bucks but now. But let's go back to Justice Souter's question because here there is a policy over a six, seven-year period of being careful about who is hired to be a police officer. That's the policy. And we have... One, does the deviation in, from the policy become in itself the, a policy? The court spoke directly to that in Canton, that when you have generally adequate municipal decision-making, the fact that one person negligently slips through the cracks or accidentally slips through the cracks, no problem. But if that one person deliberately, indifferently, criminally, recklessly slips through the cracks, then you've got a problem under Canton. Rarely will the predictors be there. Rarely will the red flags be there at the time of hiring. There aren't many winning hiring cases. You don't need to worry about that. Because rarely are the red flags there at the time of hiring that are particularly predictive of a specific constitutional deprivation. Uh, the only situations that I've seen in the lower... It's a lawsuit. Pardon? But it's a lawsuit. It, 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 it's a lawsuit. Uh, which the only which may be cheaper to, to, you know, to settle than to, than to litigate. Sometimes, uh, Your Honor, the job description and the applicant behavior, the pre-employment applicant behavior known to the county decision makers just doesn't match the job description. You don't put child molesters in a first grade classroom. You don't make them janitors at the elementary school. Maybe groundskeepers at the high school, maybe an assistant to the tax collector. Uh, the, the same thing here. The job description of a police officer, as this court recognized in Canton, as Justice O'Connor's uh, concurring opinion noted in Canton, police officers are expected by the nature of their job to face recurring situations where there are clear constitutional duties regarding the use of force. Those recurring situations often involve uh, stressful, uh, con tense confrontations with citizens. That's the job description. You don't hire individuals. Some persons are unfit. Recent, lengthy, lawless, disrespect for law and order, immature, occasional violent behavior is a red flag. It is highly predictive of the constitutional deprivation that in fact occurred. Again, if you've got a different constitutional deprivation, uh, um, enforcing the law in a racially discriminatory manner, you don't have the causal link. But, but, but we've got all that. We've got the red flag. We've, uh, also, I think the lack of hiring suits speaks well of the municipal policymakers in this country, that normally when they see that red flag, they don't hire. Or if they do hire, they take some corrective measures subsequent to hiring. But, uh, and, and again, that's all the deliberate indifference standard uh, requires a, per, of a person to do. The, the federal district courts, Justice Scalia, have not been reluctant to grant summary judgment to, to counties if the county comes up with 
the least bit of summary judgment proof that they made an effort, that they paid attention. This record, in this case, is devoid of that paying attention. Um, we ran his record, but then we didn't read it. But he had no felonies, as it turned out. That was the brunt of their case on the hiring. With respect to the bad training, in the face of expert testimony that there was no formal departmental training, that the training was non-existent in the county. Um, the only thing they came up with was, well, he rode with Grandpa a few times in the squad car, and Grandpa, um, in, in the terms of... Uh, in his testimony, pointed out the do's and don'ts of what to do, things to look for with drunk drivers, possible causes, possible reasons to pull people over, and things of that nature. They didn't, the county didn't produce evidence of one single solitary representative of the county that took Stacy, despite Stacy Burns' lengthy pre-employment record of behavior including violence, they didn't point to one county official that took him aside and said, son, let me tell you about the use of force. You're going to be facing situations where you need to use force. Here's when you can, here's when you can't. The record is devoid of that. And, and, and I'd like to point out that I, I think there's a blatant misstatement of the record on page 5 of uh, Petitioner's brief here, claiming that Calc Legere, which was Grandpa, and Howell gave Burns general instructions on law enforcement, particular instructions on how to detect drunk drivers, on proper procedures to conduct an investigatory stop, and on methods of placing a suspect under the officer's custody and control. That last, methods of placing a suspect under the officer's custody and control, the transcript site 580 simply doesn't bear that out. No one told him about the use of force. Now that's deliberate indifference. And it's going to be a rare case, a case like ours, where you can meet all those standards. This is, uh, in conclusion, I think this is a case ultimately about accountability. Um, accountability of police officers on the street, which is enforced largely through the Fourth Amendment, in accountability on the part of those ultimate policymakers that decide who to put on the street. Yet in, in the Fourth Amendment arena, under Michigan versus Sitz, which is the drunk driving roadblock case, under... Thank you, Mr. Sayre. Thank you. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.